morning. Uh, today we are beginning a new series, and it's called Jesus, the True and Better. And what we're going to be looking at is how you see a typology of Jesus throughout the Scriptures. See, many of us have read the Bible, and we've heard stories all throughout our lives. We've heard stories of, of Noah and the flood. Uh, we've heard about Adam and Eve and the fall. We've heard about David and Goliath, and we even attribute it, and you've heard it preached many times, that David slayed the giant, and just as he overcame the giant, you should be able to overcome things in your life through God's grace. But I'll tell you that that's not the, the Bible's teaching of that story. Matter of fact, all the stories that you and I look at all point to a nation and then ultimately from a nation to a man, a man that would redeem a nation and redeem a fallen humanity, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do is, is we're starting a Christmas series a little early. Uh, I know there's many of you in here like, oh no, oh no, oh no. We cannot start Christmas this early. But I'll tell you at Stone Point, even in our office, we're starting to play Christmas music tomorrow, okay? And so let me ask you a question. If you're here in Wills Point and uh, maybe in the Edgewood campus, if you would say in here, I am willing to join you in starting the celebration of Jesus Christ a little bit early because of the expect expectations of what's to come in our celebration. And you would say, I'll play Christmas music starting tomorrow in my car, in the office, wherever it is. I'll, I'm going to log on to my Pandora and I'm going to have it going. Okay, if you'll join me, raise your hand. Okay, okay, there we go. Awesome. And here's why. It's because we're going to celebrate all that is to come. And what we're going to do is, over the course of the next six weeks, and then on Christmas Eve, which will be the seventh message, we're going to take an Old Testament character, a story, and we're going to show you how it's a type of the Messiah to come. We're going to show you the similarities between one of those characters and Jesus, that you would walk away, and as you read that story, you'll never look at it the same way again. And the reason why is because we want you to understand that the God of the Bible did not simply give you some book with meaningless objectives, but he gave you a book to live by, to hold on to, to give you hope, to give you a future, and not only that, to show you the surety of a God of details, that he didn't miss it. And I'll tell you this, I'm so excited about this message because I know that if you'll pay attention with me, that you'll walk out of here today and you'll go, oh my goodness. And there's no way that we should be able to walk out of here today and not see the similarities between the first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam who he caved under the penalty of sin under the best circumstances. And the last Adam who he stood firm in the temptation of sin under the worst of circumstances. And so you have the first Adam who has it all and he fails. And you have the last Adam who comes under Harsh expectations, judgment, death, all of that looms over a nation, all of that reigns in people's lives, and yet he stands up under those difficult times so that you and I may understand God's grace and that the penalty of our sin may be atoned for. Amen? So let's begin this morning, and uh, we're going to start in our Bible in Genesis chapter 1. And so if you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn there. Uh, if you don't have your Bible... Um, we would love to get you one, and if, if you uh, don't have one, we want to make sure that you have one available, but 
more than anything, we're going to provide it for you up on the screen so you're not just out there wondering. Let's pray together and then we're going to begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the message of hope. We thank you for the redemptive story of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you, Father, that that does not begin just in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But it starts way before then, as you show us the prefiguring of Jesus Christ throughout all the Old Testament narrative. And so, Lord, may we grab onto that. And I pray, Lord, that you would show us, reveal to us who you are and what your plan is for us in this story. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in Genesis chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 26. You see all of the creation that begins, and you see five days of creation, and here's what you see. You see God taking and preparing a planet for a man named Adam and his wife named Eve. Now think about this. We've always looked at the creation story as a marvelous thing, and obviously it's God working out, doing things that only he could do. To speak the world into existence literally in five days' time is amazing to me. And he does it in five days, not seven days. He does it in five days. On the sixth day, he creates man. And what he's done in the previous five days before he creates man and woman is this. He's prepared a, a beautiful place for them. A place where grace abounds. A place where they are in relationship with a good Heavenly Father who's infinitely good, infinitely perfect, who has a perfect plan for their lives. And he has given them everything they need, and it is the best of circumstances for humanity. Everything was good. Everything was good. And even on the sixth day, it was good after the creation of Adam and Eve. And then God rested on the seventh. I want you to pick up with me in Genesis 1, verse 26, and we're going to look at the creation of man and woman. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Right there, that is God saying, let us, who is us? That's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the first reference of the entire Trinity right there in Genesis chapter 1. God doesn't throw the Trinity on you later on in the Gospels. The Trinity is weaved throughout the entire Gospel narrative as well as the Old Testament narrative. And even here in Genesis chapter 1, you see the foundational pieces of the Spirit hovering over the water. You see what? Everything you need. You've got God, the Father, who orchestrates it. And you have Jesus, according to Colossians chapter 1, who speaks all the world into existence. And they are all there in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. They say, let us make man in our image. And so what does this say about you and I? It says this. In Psalm 139, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Why? Because God made you in his image. Hey, I know in Will's point, for sure, probably in Edgewood too, we oftentimes would say, man, I'm not going over there. They're a bunch of trailer park trash. But let me ask you a question. Can God create trailer park trash? According to the Bible, he says no, because right here in the very foundational piece of our scriptures, which is why we have such a precedence for people in Paris right now, is because we know that there's dignity in life. That man should not come along and kill other people. That's why we support things such as what? Pro abortion. I mean, we're not pro abortion. We, we want pro life. Why? Because there's dignity, because everyone is created in the image of God according to our likeness, is what he says. And he says, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, the sky, over the cattle, and all of the earth, 
and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And so you see that the plan is, is them to be the vice region of God. You have God, and they have a perfect relation with him. And what? They live under his rule, his reign, his authority. They are able to come into his presence. But yet what? They have everything they need. They rule over the birds, the air, the fish of the sea, the livestock, and all that there is. And then look what it says in verse 28. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over all the living things that move on the earth. You see what they just said? Like, the best of circumstances. Like, it does not get any better than that. Like, can you imagine what this would even be like in Genesis chapter 1 and 2? Like, I mean, no hurt, no pain, no devastation, no news that you have to turn on and watch. I mean, it is a perfect circumstance. God creates man his image. He gives everything there is. And then he says, and hey, and go and multiply and fill the earth. Now, men, I don't know about you, but that sounds awesome to me, right? Some of you will catch it later, okay? And then God said, verse 29, Behold, I've given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree that has fruit-yielding seed, it shall be food for you, and every beast of the earth, and every bird of the sky, and everything that moves in the earth which has life. I have given every green plant for food. It was so. And God saw all that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. The best of circumstances, God creates Adam and Eve. And he says, live, breathe, move, and enjoy all that I have for you. And then he says, and there's one prohibition. There's just one thing that you need not do. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, he shows you what it is. And so let's look at it. And then the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And he says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to cultivate and you're going to keep this garden. You're going to enjoy it. Gardening was fun. It wasn't laborious. He didn't sweat. It wasn't some task that he didn't enjoy doing. It was something that was good. It was something that they enjoyed. It was, it was as if it multiplied and all you had to do was pick it. And they worked and they enjoyed it. And then the Lord said in verse 16, And God commanded them saying, From any tree in the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat it you will surely die. He goes, There is everything here that you need to enjoy. And you can have anything that you would like. Enjoy it all. Yet there's one thing that I'm asking you to stay away from. There's one prohibition. And what's interesting is, is that he doesn't map out the prohibition for them, does he? I mean, he doesn't give them the ramifications of their sin. He just says, and if you eat it, you surely die. And they're wondering, well, I don't even know what that really means. But here's what's interesting. Why did God not give them more details along with the prohibition? The same reason that he doesn't give you a lot of details in some of the prohibitions. Like, God's commanded us to do certain things, and we oftentimes wonder, well, God, if you're such a life-giving, good, benevolent God, then why is it that you keep us from so many good things? And here, he says, you can enjoy everything there is except one prohibition. Stay away from this one thing. And can you only imagine why he's doing this? You're thinking, well, well maybe it was that God didn't want them to be hurt, or maybe God didn't want them to, to feel anxiety. Or No, no, no. God wanted to know one thing. 
do you believe that I'm trustworthy? That's why he didn't give out a lot of details on the prohibition, because he wants to ask this one question. Can you trust me? Can you trust me? Like, can you imagine if, if it's National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, you remember uh, Clark Griswold, he gets trapped in the attic, attic right? And you, you remember the film that starts playing, you know, and he's reminiscing about all the good times, yes? Consider this. Maybe that God pulled out the film strip, and instead of going backwards, he went forward. And for Adam and Eve, what if he would have showed them the cost of their sin? What if they would have saw their son Cain take a rock and strike their son Abel in the middle of the field? What if they would have saw the response of their son Cain to God when he says, where is your brother? And he said, am I my brother's keeper? What do you think it would have been like if they would have saw the faith of Noah yet only to be consumed with all the people around him that mocked him by a flood? And infants... And young children, as they scream and they cry out, as they hurl to God in the midst of the raging tide, as it sweeps over their villages, and they're literally agonizing, and you can hear the loudness of the noise, and these kids and these children and these parents are crying out. And Adam and Eve simply watch this film strip. What would it look like for that just to go silent? After 40 days and 40 nights of rain, everything ceases only to see God's judgment on the land. What would it look like to see this people called Israel to be raised up and only to be trapped in 400 years of this incredible bondage where slaves are literally being beaten and their lives are at risk every day as they just draw near to God asking and begging for freedom as they cry out saying, God, would you please let us go? Only to see Moses go. Could you imagine the film strip? Could you imagine all that they would see would happen? And all of this is because of one prohibition that they, what? Do something with. Matter of fact, what do they do with it? Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. After God gives them this prohibition, and he gives them this one question, can I be trusted? Am I trustworthy? Well, let's answer the question. Verse 1, it says, Now the serpent, who was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, said to the woman. And so what is it? He's crafty. God sees this all playing out. And here it is, Satan is crafty. And he comes to the woman and he says, Indeed, has God said to you, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which was in the middle of the garden... God said, you shall not eat from it, and you shouldn't touch it or you will die. Now, let me ask you a question. What did God say? He says, you can enjoy all of these things, but you should not eat of one tree in the garden. And what does she do? She says, after having this conversation with this crafty, cunning, deceptive Diabolos, the accuser, devil himself, she says, well, he said, don't eat it and don't touch it or you'll surely die. No, no, he said, don't eat it. But what you're going to see is a manipulation of this prohibition. And you're going to see a manipulation from both sides. The man and the woman, but also from the craftiness and the cunningness of Satan himself. And he says this, And the serpent said to the woman, You surely won't die. 
For God knows that in the day you eat of it from your eyes, it will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here's what happens. The idea here is Satan wants to bring a lie to Adam and Eve. And he says, if, 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 God, if God would hold anything from you, then it must mean that he wants to hold everything from you. If God would hold anything from you, then it must mean that he wants to hold everything from you. And he says, surely God doesn't want you to enjoy any of this. And that's not the prohibition, is it? God says, I am giving you all of these things to enjoy, the best of circumstances, and there's one tree that you should not eat from. And of course, we know that they eat from it. And then we see the curses begin to manifest. And the curses are this. They are removed from God's presence. There would be labor pains for the woman. Man would rule over her. You would see that toiling and laboring would be laborious. There would be thorns and thistles that would raise up. And the last one, death, would enter the world. And death would be passed down from generation to generation, and there is no one that is exempt from it. It doesn't matter if you live in Moscow. It doesn't matter if you live in Detroit. It doesn't matter if you live in the Sudan. It doesn't matter if you live in Wills Point or Edgewood, Texas. There is no one that is human that is exempt from what? Death and the curse that's passed down. Why? Because Adam has one prohibition, and God simply wants him to see this. Can I be trusted? And see, we think about the film strip, right? We think about all that they could have seen. And here's the question. What if they could have saw all those things and Satan would have come to them and said, hey, would you like to eat? What would they have said? No. Oh, no. But the question is, is why would they have said no? Would they have said no because their decision was rooted in trust of a holy and infinite God? Or would they have said no because of the cost analysis of the situation? According to the text, the reason they ate was because they didn't have a cost analysis and because they couldn't trust God for what he had said. Sound familiar, friends? And so here's the problem. You see what happens. Verse 6, it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it and she ate and she gave it to her husband with her and he ate. This one simple act. They took and they ate. This one simple act. They take and they eat. And it literally brings devastation, death, and pain, and the curses to humanity. One simple act. And here's the question. Is this the benevolent God kind of overreacting? Like, okay, God, like, okay. I mean, I get you're holy. I get that you're good. I get that you, you understand what's going on. But God, they just ate of one piece of fruit. I mean, come on. How bad could it be? Like, does it really cause a, a removal from your presence? Does it really mean a curse that passed down from generation to generation, toil and laboring, labor pains, woman? I mean, ladies, is it really that bad, Lord? Yes. Because they, in one moment, believed a lie and said, God, you cannot be trusted. And so in verse 7, it says, the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And so is it a big deal that Adam and Eve sinned? Yes. 
the biggest deal is that they disobeyed a God who is benevolent and kind and trustworthy. And you go, well, how does it affect me? Well, it affects you because everything that happened in the garden is passed down to you. Now, that doesn't even sound real fair, does it? Like, you're, you're telling me, like, I thought I was judged on my sin. Like, I mean, you, you, don't you believe that? Like, I'm, I thought I was judged on my sin. That doesn't seem fair that I would be judged on someone else's sin. That doesn't seem fair to me. But the bottom line is, is that we are judged according to Adam and Eve's sin as well. Not just yours, everything that goes backwards, all the way to Adam and Eve. Why? John 3 says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. It means if you're born of a natural man, you are a sinner, you deserve death, condemnation, and you inherit every single curse that happened in Genesis chapter 3. Now, hey, that's the good news, right? That's terrible. But that's the way of the first Adam, who failed in the best of circumstances. Paul gives us a glimpse of some hope. And he gives us a glimpse of not only the first Adam, but he gives us a glimpse of the second Adam. A true and better Adam. A true and better Adam that he would be tested in the garden as well. And yet he would be obedient under the worst of circumstances. That as men are about to approach him, as they're about to capture him and lead him to a cross, he is completely obedient. Yes? Let's read about him in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, Paul gives us an inclination of this story. And it's an amazing thing to see what it is that we put our hope in. What it is that we put our refuge in. Now, are y'all with me? Edgewood, are y'all with me? I couldn't even hear you, Edgewood. Are y'all with me? Look at this. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore... Just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Do you see this? Through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spreads to all men. There is no one exempt, not even one, because all sin. 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to the church in Corinth in verses 21 and 22, he says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. And so the idea here is this, in Adam we all die. We have all been passed down the transgressions of our forefathers. All of them lead back to our father. And so here it is, whether Greek or Jew, whether you are Gentile, whether you are white or black, whether you are purple or blue, whether you speak a foreign language or you speak English, you and I all have the same father, rich or poor. We all lead back to one man. And through that one man centered in the world, and that passed down to what? Death. Death that covers all men, all women. You're not exempt. And then verse 13 says, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Imputed is a big word for counted. So here it is. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not counted when there is no law. So here it is. Think about this. From the time that Adam and Eve sinned until the days of Moses, which was 1500 B.C., there was approximately 1500 to 2000 years where there was no law. And God says, and I counted their sin not against them. 
But what happened? It says here, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Do you see this? So God didn't judge the people before there was no law. For instance, if you're driving down the road and you have a speed limit sign, but it's covered up by shrubs, and the police officer pulls you over and he gives you a ticket, you can say, no, 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 I didn't see a sign anywhere. Well, yeah, there's a sign right back there. And upon approaching it, he looks at it and he sees, you can't see the sign. Then guess what? He can't hold you accountable to something you didn't know was wrong. Yes? And prior to Moses, there was no law. There was no Ten Commandments. And so God says, I'm not going to hold them accountable for that sin prior to the law on Mount Sinai that I gave Moses. But nevertheless, death still reigned. Meaning that still, before Moses, every single one of those people still died. And death still reigned. They still inherited all the products of the curse. But look at this. Even those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Is there good news? Yes. He says, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of those who came. And so here's the deal. There was someone who measured up. Where all the ways that Adam failed, Christ would triumph. There is a true and better type, is what verse 14b says. Do you see this? Death reigned, entered the world, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. But there is one who is a type of one to come, Jesus Christ. And look at verse 15, 16, 17, 18. Here we go. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of one the many died, much more did the grace of God, the gift of grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So you see the gift? It says that there is a free gift. And the free gift's not like the transgression. The transgression causes death, and everyone receives it. But there is a, what? For if by the transgression one of the, the many died, much more did the grace of God abound, and the gift of grace of one man abound to many. Meaning, where death reigns, grace abounds all the more. In the first Adam, he brings death and condemnation. In the last Adam, Jesus Christ, he brings grace and grace and grace and more grace. And verse 16 says, The gift is not like that which came through the one who sent. For on the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from Many transgressions resulting in justification. What is justification? What is condemnation? Condemnation means you get what you deserve. Justification means that there is one who takes away the sin of the world. And he gives you justification. And it's just as if you never sinned. So get this. Adam brings death, but Christ brings life. The first Adam failed under the best of circumstances... Christ stood up under the worst of circumstances. He brings life, not death. He is the true and better Adam. Verse 17 says, For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Look at this. For if by the transgression of one, who is the transgression of one? Adam. So if sin and transgression came through Adam, Death reigns through the one, through Adam. So sin and death come. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through one of Jesus Christ. Get this. 
you see that Adam not only brings death, but God brings justification. He brings sin. God brings righteousness. And then verse 17 says, So then, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification to all men. Listen to me. Sin enters the world through one man. And what? Sin is punished through one man. Do you see this? Sin enters the world through one man. And what? Sin enters the world through one man, but it's paid for by one man. Got it? The true and better Adam pays the price for all the things that you inherit. Yes? But the bottom line is this. What if, what if you go, well, that's not fair. I, I shouldn't inherit all these sins from my forefathers. I, I'm getting everything that Adam and Cain and Abel and all of these other men and women in the Bible did. And all that just keeps flooding down to me. Yes. But the question is this. Could you actually, in the economy of God's judgment, hold up on your own? And so like, we have this double entendre, this incredible problem. Why? Because Romans 3 says none is righteous, not even one. Romans 3, that's 10. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does God, not even one. Romans 10, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You and me alike. Yes, in the first Adam, we all die. But guess what? In the last Adam, we all have an incredible hope. And we can all have an incredible future. Why? Because this. He does not think like you and I think. God does not work the way that you and I would work. We look and we go, well, it's not fair that we're judged by Adam. And he would say, no, it's not fair that you're judged by the second Adam. Because what he's willing to do is this. He's willing to take all of your filth, all of your sin, all of your shame, and place it on his son Jesus, and take all of his righteousness, all the condemnation that you deserve in the first Adam, and place it on you, and make you what? Holy and just. A holy nation. A royal priesthood. A chosen people. Because of a second Adam. And you go, well, that's fantastic. No, I don't think you understand how fantastic this is. Let me explain this to you. I'm about to show you a few more things. There's only two men in the Bible that are born supernaturally. One who God breathes by dust. And one who's conceived of a virgin named Mary. See, that's why the virgin birth is such a crucial thing for you as Christians. That's why we ought to begin celebrating now. That's why you ought to have Christmas music playing tomorrow. Because if there is no virgin birth, and Jesus was not born supernaturally, it means He inherited everything from Adam just like you and I did, and He cannot be a Savior. It's foundational. Why? Because just as... The first Adam was conceived supernaturally. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, was conceived supernaturally. You have the first Adam who's disobedient in the garden, and yet we have the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who's obedient in the garden. God, not my will, but thy will be done. John 17. We have one who failed in his temptation, and we have one who is perfect in his temptation. Hebrews 4.15. He even sympathizes with us in our temptation. Why? Because we have a high priest Who's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses? We have one who's tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. He was perfect. 
We have one who is cursed by the tree of life. Yes, the one prohibition. And we have one who is cursed on the tree that brings life. Galatians 3. We have sin that enters through this man, and we have sin that was punished by a man. We have one who took an aid of death, and we have one who in Luke 22 says, take and eat and enjoy the bread of life. And this body that was broken for you and this blood that was spilt for you. Take and eat. Pretty important words in my Bible. Pretty important words in your Bible. Yes? We have one who gives an inheritance that leads to death, and yet we have one, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who gives an inheritance that brings what? To life. Life that never spoils or fades away. First Peter. So look at verse 19. This is the good news. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even though through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Got it? The law came in so that transgression would increase. Like, you understand this? The law came in so the transgression would increase. Like we look around our world right now and we go, man, this place stinks. Like it's bad. But the only reason you know it's bad is because there's a law that made it good. Do you understand that? See, the law is not something that you should abide by. Like the hope is not to put the Ten Commandments up on your wall and go, okay, kids, you do everything right there that you can and God will love you. No, 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 no. The law is simply a standard that shows you how much you've failed. Yes? It's simply there to remind you that you are greedy. It's simply there to remind you that you are wicked. That your heart is deceitful. That in God's presence we fall short of the glory of God. That's what the law is there for. It's not a standard in which you should try to keep because you can't keep it. But it's a standard there that reveals to you that you'll never live up to that standard. And yet there is a true and better Adam that will come, that will live up to it on your behalf. That's the goal. But where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. That's the latter part of 20. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Adam brings sin. Christ brings life. Amen. 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 After the death and uh, resurrection of Aslan, the lion, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which became the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis says this, as the lion says to Lucy and Susan in the book, When a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and the death itself would start working backward. Okay, so get this. When a willing victim who had committed no sin, you got me, died in a traitor's stead, when they switch places. It says the tables would crack, and it would fly open, and death itself would start to work backwards. Got me? I'm going to show you something here. Y'all ready for this? If you did a word search for the word Adam in Bible Gateway, you would see it pop up in a variety of places. You would see it in Genesis uh, chapter 2. You'd see it in Genesis chapter 3. In those first narratives, you would see it later in Romans 5 that we've read in a reference to Adam. You would see it in 1 Corinthians 15 in a reference to Adam. And that's about all there is in your Bible with the exception of one other place in Joshua chapter 3 and Joshua chapter 4. And this is actually referring to a city called Adam, but spelled A-D-A-M. And at first glimpse, as you're kind of reading through it, you're like, okay, that's awesome. There's a city named Adam. But here's what's interesting. 
The city of Adam is actually camped along the Jordan River in between the Sea of Galilee to the north and the Dead Sea to the south. Now, here's what's interesting. Y'all paying attention with me? This is pretty phenomenal. This is why the Bible is so incredible. Up to the north, you have the Sea of Galilee, which is literally the Sea of Blessing. It is where life happens. People gather there all around the year. It is a beautiful place. Birds fly in. They enjoy so much there. There is all types of fish and birds, and there's this life there. And what's interesting is, is that flows out to the Jordan River, and the Jordan River flows all the way down, and it dumps into a Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea, there is no life. There is nothing flying around. As a matter of fact, if you were to sit in the Dead Sea, you'd practically float. It's nasty. I haven't actually been there, but I have a friend that went, and he brought back a bottle of the water from the Dead Sea. I don't even know if that was permissible, but I'm assuming so. And it was just murky and slimy. It was just nasty. And there is no life there. What's interesting is, is that you have a sea that is in Galilee, right there where Jesus was born, a man of Galilee, a blessing of God that flows through the Jordan River and dumps into the death. And what's interesting is, is it flows through the Jordan River, and get this, Jordan literally means the rivers of Jordan, judgment. Got it? The blessings of God flow through the waters of Jordan, judgment, dump into death. And they pass through a city right on the Jordan on the east bank called Adam. Now you go, well, awesome. Well, here's the deal. Now, let me, let me explain awesome to you. Awesome is the story in Joshua 3 and 4. They are going to take the promised land, and they fall short in Moses, and so they command a guy named Joshua to lead them forward towards the promised land. In Moses, they fall short in the law. They have to have someone bring them into the promised land, into the inheritance that God has for them. Joshua is the man. Who, he was a study. He studied under Moses. He was there with Moses, and he's the guy. And what he does is listen to the Lord. And in Joshua chapter 3, the Lord says, I want you to take the Levites, and I want you to take the priests, and I want you to take the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, and I want you to walk through the, the river of Jordan. And I want you to have them stand there. And I'm going to take those waters when they stand there, and I'm going to begin to rise them up, and they're going to recede backwards. And they're going to go from the waters of judgment all the way back to a city named Adam. And they're going to stop there. Joshua 3, go read it later so you know what I'm talking about. And they're going to stop there and when the priests are there, they're going to stay there with the presence of God and all the people are going to pass through. But before they all pass through, I want you to know that they are to stand firm and let everyone pass and I'm going to protect them. The, valleys of, the, the water of judgment will not pass over them. They'll be free to go through. And they go through and they begin to inherit. They even go up to Gilgal, the promised land. But God gives an incredible instruction to them. And he says, I want you to take 12 stones off the bank of the water and I want you to put them down in the bed of the river, the Jordan. And I want you to take 12 stones from the bottom of the Jordan and I want you to take them and put them on the bank of the Jordan. And they just switch places. 
And after they had done all these things, all of Israel's passed through, the priests had done exactly what they wanted. The presence of God had receded the waters backwards all the way to Adam. They passed through. The Ark of the Covenant steps out. Both stones, sets of stone had been transferred, one for every tribe. And then the waters crash down. And judgment comes again. Why did they transfer the 12 stones? Well, you had 12 stones on the bank that were free. And they were put in the valley of judgment. And you had 12 that were under judgment that were set free. And the waters recede all the way back to Adam. What does that mean? Get this. When Christ died for you and me, He didn't just get your sin. He goes all the way back to the waters of judgment, to the blessing of God, and He gets it all the way back to Adam. Where the first Adam fell short, the second Adam lived up. If you are here today, and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, there is a penalty called sin that you will pay. And judgment will fall down on you, and you will not escape the judgment. You will not be set free. But through Jesus Christ, as He stands in the waters of judgment for you, you can cross over the great divide from death to life in Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I can think of no better day. Hey, I'm not talking about a casual, hey, I just think I should pray and maybe ask Jesus Christ in my heart and, you know, I'd like to go to heaven. No, 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 no. I don't know where we get the terminology. I'm just going to accept Jesus. Jesus is accepting you. You and I are sinners that deserve judgment, death, and condemnation. And he allows us to have the Passover, the blood, covering us that the angel of death would pass over. He is the true and better Adam. And many of us in this room need grace that abounds, even in our sin, going all the way back to Adam. Amen? And amen? And amen. Do you know what this means? It means that God can be trusted, and it means that we ought to be playing our Christmas music early. Why? Because the true and better Adam has already arrived. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the story of your grace. I thank you, Father, that you have covered over our sin, that you've given us new life in Jesus Christ. And Father, where we fell short through the inheritance of Adam and even in our own lives where we failed to, to live up to your standards, Father, you allow grace to abound. And where there was death, you bring life. Where there was judgment, you bring freedom and peace and righteousness. And Father, where we fell short, you measured up. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that you were holy and that you were perfect and that your plan is good. And there was never a point in history where you didn't already have it figured out. That there's every single word of the Bible means something. And there's details there that we've never seen before. And Lord, I pray that we would read it with tenacity. That we would discover the richness of your beauty. And Lord, that we would be mesmerized by your grace that abounds all the more. And Lord, if we... Believe that you're trustworthy and that you're good and you're benevolent and that you are perfect, then why will we not live for you? Why will we not abide in you? Why will we not trust you? Why do we continue to sin all the more that grace may increase where grace has already increased all that it needs to be? 
Lord, we love you and we give our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen.